Hi, I'm Marcus Gale, former professional footballer and current club ambassador and lead educator at Brentford Football Club. Welcome to Behind the Dugout podcast. I'm Rachel Downey, join myself and Troy Townsend each week when we go behind the scenes to look at the world of football. We will chat to those involved in the beautiful game or those who simply just love football. This is the Behind the Dugout podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Well, Marcus, thank you for coming here today and coming on the podcast. Lovely to to see you. Um, The first thing I want to ask, a boy born in Hammersmith, Mm-hmm. How how did you end up here? How did it all begin for you? What age did you first enjoying and love football? Um, I think the first incident of me gonna enjoy football was probably about two years of age. Oh wow! When uh, my grandfather was changing the old light bulbs, and he took the the casing off, he put the big light bulb casing down on the floor, and he saw a little two year old take a couple steps back <laughs> and then I ran up and kicked it. Did you? So um, He's got apparently, apparently said you need to get that kid a bo- uh, that boy a ball. Oh, so yeah. I was given a football from very early. Uh, I probably fell in love with it. It was my best friend. Yeah. Um, the way I could express myself, I suppose. So I was always sort of designed to be a footballer, I suppose, from very early. Yeah. So um, yeah, I had a, an early indication that that was the path I was going to go down. And did you used to play football like after school, at the weekends? Was it every day? I played at, at least once a day, if, if anything, um, every day. If there was a space or a time in my schedule, which I know as a kid you don't really have a schedule, you're just playing. Yeah. But I was, I was playing football, I was doing all kinds of sports, athletics, kung fu, along with riding bikes. Back in my day, it was adventure playgrounds. I'm sure Troy would know about those things as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always active. I was always outside the house. So I was always involved with movement and interpreting my environment mm. through sport through and in particular football. And did you have any footballers back then? Way back then, no, back then. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> that you were inspired by? Um, obviously, John Barnes was probably the main one he looked like me played in the same position well I played in his position um there was John Robertson as well mm. so from a 10 year old I remember watching Nottingham Forest that was probably the first team I sort of locked on to because yeah. of him um because there was back then there was only three sort of teams that were really on t- on TV that was Liverpool Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa okay. most of my guys in the area from Shepherd's Bush they all went and supported Liverpool yeah. and have indoctrinated their sons supporting <laughs> Liverpool um, I thought I'm not going to go Liverpool I'm going to go Nottingham Forest so that yeah. was the first kit I had and then after that I kind of fell in love with Tottenham yeah. Glenn Hoddle yeah. um, Good man. so those were the sort of early sort of players I looked at and do you remember the first football game you actually went to yeah that was a Brentford match um I was a schoolboy, so we're talking decades ago. I was probably about 13, 14. Yeah. And the first game was like a, a, a Southern Cup final or semi-cup final where Brentford beat Newport 6-0. So that was my very first game. Wow. And then the second ever game watching Brentford was um, the Cup final at Wembley. That's and not lost. bad. Yeah, so I had a treat at an early age going to Wembley um, with the club. So we're talking, I think, 1985. Yeah. It was a Freight Rover Cup final. So, yeah, that was my first sort of time. And what was that like as a little boy going to Wembley for the first time? You know what? I I didn't see any magic with it. I was... It sounds weird, but 
I probably didn't believe I was there. Mm. I know I was there, but I didn't really, oh, this is the big famous yeah. Wembley. But all those years after it, you're watching the cup finals, you're getting more engrossed with it. You're seeing the build up to those cup finals. Um, and now we're here today with what we have, the new Wembley, mm. the new way of sort of building that, that sort of anticipation of the cup final. But yeah, Wembley, I look back and I think, yeah, I, I've been there. The only thing in my career, I didn't actually play there. Did you not? I missed out on about three or four times. Yeah. Lost that in the semi. So I think the nearest I ever got there was in 1999 with Wimbledon. We lost to away goals rules with um, Leicester. Yeah. We drew one all and they went they went to the final. And um, I don't think I could sleep for the next two or three nights. Because <laughs> I was thinking, I'm so close, but so I'm so far. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, missed out. Missed out on playing there, but... So when did you realise you wanted to be a professional footballer or this can be the job for me? Or was it never like that? Was it a case of a hobby that you were very good at that all of a sudden you, your first kind of experience was Brentford? Um, I, I think I, at school I was asked, what do you want to be when you, when you mm. grow up? I said a footballer. So I must have been about seven, yeah, six or seven. Um, I think my mum might still have that book where it's written as well. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, I knew from early that that was what I wanted to do. Mm. Trying to make it was a different topic at all. It was... Well, how hard was that? How You say trying to make it. Like, where do you go then at seven years old well, deciding this is what you want to do? How do you how do you get spotted by the football team? How, how does that all happen? Well, I was playing local football on Friday nights in Shepherd's Bush. Um, and then a, a scout came from well out in West London. And he heard about my team, heard about myself, so he invited us for a trial. Mm. So about four or five of us went for the trial. I got in with a few of them. And then it was like my first sort of season playing proper 11 aside yeah. on a Sunday morning. And I loved it. I think the first year I got like 30 goals and I was playing left wing. Wow. Um, I was one of those lazy left wingers. You get back to the halfway line, you put your knees on your, your hands <laughs> on your knees to get your breath back. Yep. A bit like when I came here for the train. Um, <laughs> and true. then um, wheezing. Yeah, it started to build that momentum. Now I'm, I'm hearing the sort of compliments. I'm hearing this fear when you play. People are very weary of you. Yeah. Um, my mum didn't really sort of understand the football industry, so she didn't. She weren't really around it. Mm. She didn't really understand why am I so obsessed until I got her to a, a game at Brentford, age 15, and I begged her to come. Said, "Mum, it's a cup final. You got to come." Yeah. And I kept begging her for three weeks. She, she eventually came. And then after that game, she said, like, I can see why you're so into this. I goes, why? What do you mean? And she said, like, every time you got the ball, the crowd was like, go on, Marcus. They were so excited and they was getting out of their seats every time I got onto the ball. And that's when it clicked for us that I can see what he wants to do. Um, and then from then, it was, it was still very much hard work. Mm. Um, nothing ever easy. Um, but I just loved playing games. I was always playing football. Now you went from Brentford to Wimbledon mm -hmm. um, and you played, you're a very influential part in Wimbledon. What was that like? So your first game for Wimbledon, you're in the changing rooms. <laughs> do you, like, what kind of things would go through your mind? Um, like, this is a big, big opportunity. Or do you not feel that pressure? I was a little bit naive. I was just young and cocky, I suppose. Uh, yeah. um, and in that changing room, you had Vinnie Jones, John Fashionu. Wow. And I remember... John called me over into his corner. He's sitting there, he's like, he's ripped as usual, and he's just 
an awesome specimen and individual to, to be around. And um, he goes, come here, sit here. So I sat, sat beside him. He goes, look, it's your debut. You're going to get tired. Just give me a signal and you'll get your breather. And I was like, no, I'm all right, big man. I'm all right. <laughs> I'm all good. So I'm just thinking, what's this guy on about? Yeah. So he saw the confusion in my face. He goes, look, it's your debut. You're going to get tired. Give me a signal. Someone will go down, meaning he's going to injure someone. <laughs> and that's when you get your breather. So I said, I think I'll be all right, big man. I think I'll be all right. And I walked off. This yeah. guy, what is he? <laughs> what am I got myself into? So my debut was against Leeds. I was up against Gary Kelly. Um, I didn't realise how quick he was. Mm. I've watched him on Match of the Day, but yeah. to actually go up against him, wow, yeah. he's quick. So it made me stay sharp. It made me think about different ways of getting past quick players as well. Um, because I've never sort of faced that sort of pace before. Yeah. But I've eventually worked it out. I had to try and get past these quicker players. Me being six foot two, most fullbacks are not that sort of size. Yep, yeah. So there was different ways of me different advantages. beating them. But yeah. yeah, the debut was a, a feisty one. It was good. Did it you need good. a rest? No, I didn't need a rest. See, there you go. But, but I saw people taking a rest. <laughs> that, that was the thing. There was a few moments in that game where I thought, geez, that's a bit over the top. I can't believe what I've heard. I can't believe what I've seen. Yeah. But that was my sort of induction into the, the world induction. of Crazy Gang, which was, it was wild. What were those years like? You mentioned they're like Vinnie Jones. What what was it like off the pitch? Like, um, you give us any stories? Off the pitch, look, it's a continuation of what goes on on the pitch as well. Mm. I think what you saw on the pitch it originally started off of it. Okay, yeah. So the, the culture, the behaviour, it was a very tight-knit group and it's still very much tight till this day. Yeah. We, we tend to meet up maybe twice a year. Oh, do you? It's the strongest bond I've ever known in football. Oh, wow. Like, with all the clubs I've played. Yeah. Um, I had seven years with those boys, and it's like a brotherhood. Everyone's still very close. They'll do anything for you. Everyone's at the end of a phone call. Um, but the, the culture was set from very early. I, I went into that club quite nervous, thinking, how am I going to handle the crazy gang? Yeah, the crazy guy. I, I was to a point I was probably scared like yeah. the first day or two, but they're infamous. They really are. Yeah, but I learnt pretty quick. You know, I was there for a reason. I was there because they they saw I had talent. They saw I could add value yeah. to the team. I was still like quite young. I was twenty three when I moved to them, so I had the sort of naive moments as well. But um, the spirit of the place was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, the antics as well, but I don't know. I don't know if I can, can you get give us a little bit of the antics. <laughs> All right, one. There was a, a massive game we played against um, Everton in '94, so mm -hmm. they needed to win this game to stay in the Premier League. Right. Um, so on the Friday, the day before, we normally have a young v old. Mm -hmm. So we have the young v old. I was on the young ones, obviously. Yeah. Bash is on the old ones because he's older <laughs> with the rest <laughs> of them. Um, <laughs> So there's a little tussle. We, we're arguing over, it's our corner, the youngster's corner. So he's not giving us the ball. So we all sort of pile in, like just playful fighting. And then yeah. we hear a, a bone break. So everyone's jumped up and checking their hands. And the one person you didn't think would break a bone was the captain, which is John Fashionu. <gasps> no. So we actually, we broke this bone in his stomach. It was sticking out. Oh my. So everyone's jumped up like, oh, wow, this ain't good. 
the captain's out. We need him for tomorrow. Yeah. The physio doesn't want to come over because he's seen everybody pile in. So he thinks he's going to get a kick in. <laughs> so he said, Mm-mm. from about 200 yards, you can see him going, Mm-mm. not my job now. Yeah. I ain't coming over there. Yeah. So we're screaming, get over here. While John Fashion is doing Kung Fu breathing to keep his, himself calm. And I'm just seeing his bones sticking out. I'm like, wow. But um, that was probably the start of the antics. And then we go to um, to travel up into to Warrington area where we would stay. Yeah. And um, we heard a like a smash in the car park. We didn't think nothing of it. And then we woke up and heard the news that the Everton fans had come to dismantle us. No. So they... I think they petrol bombed the coach. Um, they weren't messing they around. Weren't, so all the stuff we're hearing today about them setting off fireworks. Yeah. In my day, they was <laughs> looking to damage your bus. Um, so that's what they did. So we had to get a new bus coming up. Um, and never forget, Fash, he was chauffeur driven. And um, he's in his flashy Kenzo suit. He's always immaculate. Mm. Sunglasses on. Nice sunny day. He's on the bus. He's the first one off the bus. And the place is packed. It's wall-to-wall people, a sea of people outside Goodison. Uh-huh. And he's got a puff of the cigar. And he, oh, and they're rattling this bus now. I'm like, why is he doing that? He ain't why playing. We've got to go out there and do the work. Yeah. So he's antagonised the crowd. And I'm like, geez, this is the most toxic atmosphere I've ever been in in my life. But, um, yeah, we should have beaten them on the day. Yeah, um, We was 2-0 up in no time. Should have made it three. They get a soft penalty. They get back mm. into it. They score a screamer of a second goal. And then the controversy was the winning goal yeah. by Graham Stewart. Um, but that was a day. That was like, I can never forget that day, like the whole atmosphere. I was supposed to be playing left wing. Um, but when that equaliser goal went in, 2,000 fans came out of my wing onto the pitch. So for the last 10 minutes, I weren't playing left. I was playing more or less centre mid. Because <laughs> I, I said, I ain't playing with these lot. I said, they're going to try and scout me back then. Wow. But, Different so times. As soon as the referee had, he went like that, I was sprinting. That's probably my quickest sprint <laughs> in, the in the match. Back in the Was to get off the pitch. Yeah, yeah. But what a day it was. And, um, you know, Everton still have that sort of cloud hanging around yeah, them now in terms of staying up into this Premier League. Yeah. But that just gives you a little insight of, what the the crazy gang was like it was a there was no hierarchy that's it, rare because compare that to football now you feel like there is a hierarchy you don't what i mean what bonds. i mean anyone could be targeted mm. so yeah. if it was vinnie's birthday he would get beaten up brilliant so brilliant to hear. he was not left out of anything like that mm. if it was his birthday and and one of the reasons i probably survived so long there was i always made up my birthday was a day off I knew everyone's birthday. So I would give a signal, whoever's birthday it is, I would like whistle the happy birthday tune. I would go into the, the, the physio <laughs> room and I know a few of the boys, like Neil Ardley, they'll be, they'll be in there hearing, the, hearing me whistle the, the happy birthday song. And he'd be like, and I'd be like, <laughs> and he went, like that. And I'll walk out. You wind up, Merchant. He would walk out and then assemble the guys to like, all right, it's his birthday, blah, 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 get ready. So that's what it was. It was like a play center at, at training. It. So it's still very much playful now. Yeah, um, that's good. But yeah, it was, it was a special moment, special moments for me, seven years down there. And then from there, um, you had a stint at Rangers, you went to Watford. Mm-hmm. Were you sad when you left Wimbledon to move on to another club? Was the time for you right? Did it feel right? 
it didn't feel right. I was very much happy there. Um, but there was a new wave of good players mm. coming through as well. People like uh, Patrick Adjiman yeah. had a great career. Lionel Morgan, yeah. Joby McEnough, uh, Rio Coca. All these boys were coming through. And, and you still had Kyle Court, Jason Newell. So there was a, an abundance of high talent coming up. Mm. And I was like 29, 30, that sort of age. Um, I was very much happy there. I didn't want to go anywhere. Mm. But it was. I think it was the right time to move. Yeah. Um, Wanted to pay for a big club. I was probably denied a few moves um, a few years before to, I think it was Leicester um, under Martin O'Neill, mm-hmm. which was a funny one because they, they bid money for me and um, the club turned it down. So there was no more conversation. And I saw Martin at, I think it was a 2016 uh, PFA Awards. And he went, oh, let's come, let's have a talk. And I was like, okay, yeah. Um, why didn't you sign for me? I went, what? Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> I said I wanted to sign, but I, I was told that you offered, say, three million. Yeah. The club wanted four, and the phone was put down. I said, of course, I would have signed for you. It was no uh-huh. problem for me to like just play for you or mm. or the, the the club because they was similar to Wimbledon in sort of the culture. It was like a big playground, talented players that the big boys hated playing against. Yeah. So for me, it would have been an easy transition yeah, just definitely. to fit in with them. But um, yeah, that story, as I said, I met him six or seven years ago and he came up with that. I was like, wow. Yeah. It's still on his mind. That's mad how it could have been yeah. different. Your international career, you um, did, did play some games for England and then changed because your dad's Jamaican. Mm-hmm. First of all, why did you, why did you change? Um, I don't know if it's a change. I, I, I qualified for England. I'm born here. Yeah. My parents are from Barbados and Jamaica. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to earn one England under-18s cap alongside What's Alan that Shearer. Like? That was that was great to a point until I broke my leg. Yeah, okay. So yeah. Um, Not so good. I hit the post. I started the match. It was against Sweden. Um, started the second half. I've hit the post twice. And then there was a ball going down... The halfway line, I'm on the wing, so I've told the ball past the halfway line and one of the Swedish players came across and I just nicked it. I just towed it in front of him when he's already committed to come in yeah. and slide. A uh, bit of mistiming, yeah. nothing malicious. That ended up breaking my leg. Um, so, yeah, I was in Switzerland with plaster cast all the way up to the top of my leg oh my when God. the break was way down by the ankle. Um, so it was a bit of sweet moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still got the cap somewhere, um, but that was it for England in, in that regard. You know, yeah. I was I was seventeen. Um, Is that heartbreaking? Or it made me panic a bit because I weren't really interested in school. Mm. So I I done my exams, and even till today, I still don't know how good or bad I've done mm. because all I wanted to do was play football. Yeah. So about sixteen, when you can see you're on this training pitch here and then next door is the first team all I kept doing was looking over there to the first team to think yeah that's where I want to be and that was that was my education route it weren't sitting in a classroom pen and paper in your hand reciting what you've been taught mine was living the game so breaking my leg at 17 um, panic started to set in so a lot of my early pictures and I'm probably still like that 
I looked miserable. <laughs> I looked under pressure because I was. I yeah. didn't have anything to back me up. No plan B. Yeah. No, that was plan B. Yeah. Plan A and plan B were the same thing for me. So I didn't have nothing to fall back on. Um, and I'm entering my last year as the YTS, train, like the youth training scheme. Um, money weren't great either back then. But <laughs> <laughs> So I recovered after three months. Um, and then two months later, I made my first team debut. So within five months of breaking my leg, and I'm thinking my world's crashing to yeah. an end. Wow. I recovered enough to make my first team debut. I just turned 18. And then um, had the best season I did at the club. I think I scored 21 goals. We got to the FA Youth Cup semi-finals. Um, played a lot of games that season. Yeah. Um, especially when I didn't start the season, I was still recovering from this leg break. Luckily, it was clean. Yeah. So there weren't much to do. It was just like make sure it's secure, make sure my confidence upstairs is is is, is fine with it as well. Um, and then yeah, I signed pro at 18. Um, which I was delighted to do. It was just seeing the words like professional contract, I was like, wow. I mean, that's incredible. I've made it. You're listening to the Behind the Dugout podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. How do you keep the mental health side in check? And, you know, you mentioned, obviously, something like a big break yeah. in your leg. You then think, well, what if, you know, I, this doesn't happen for me. And then the pressure at 18, signing for a professional team and, you know, having that success with the amount of goals. The mental health, surely there's, for good or for bad, you are, it either all goes to your head and you become, you know, the ego takes over mm-hmm. or you get the self-doubt. How how did you manage that? I think because of my upbringing, it was mm. very humble, it was hardworking. Mm. It wasn't awash with money or anything like that. Yeah. So anything we had or I had, you looked after it. Yeah. You weren't your stripes. You, um, you, you gave the best you could. Um, and when I look back at my career, I don't think I was ever comfortable over what 18 year period that I played. I, ne- I never sat back on a contract thought, you know what, I've got four years. I can coast. sack off and yeah. coast the, the first year or two and then turn it on in the last two. I was like, I need every contract. Back then the money, well, for me, it, weren't, it wasn't great. Mm. And I'm not frightened to say how much I earn. Like as a first year pro, seventy five pound a week. Oh, seventy five a week. That's I was a pro, and then crazy. I went from that to like one twenty. Oh, and you compare that to nowadays. Compare that, to, and by the time I left, I was probably on like three fifty, and I left to go to the Premier League, that's and that's like with just under two hundred games under your belt. Wow. So compare that to today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have loved to have played today. Yeah. Because back in my time and Troy's time, um, <laughs> it was very physical. It was very robust mentally and physically. Mm. Um, you didn't have that comfortability of, as I said, sacking half a season off. Yeah. Resting up over long on an injury. It was like, I need to be fit. If yeah. I'm not fit, I ain't getting paid. I need to look after myself. You know, different mentality home back, life yeah. weren't like as I said it wasn't a wash with, with, with money and I think how I look on it now is that I took a burden away from my mum mm. especially because I live with her um, that she didn't have to worry about me from 16 Yeah. so that gave her comfort that he's alright and I think that's one of the best things any young person can do is to not to worry your parents mm. establish yourself give them that confidence that you can take care of things 
And there was times when she's like, why are you buying that car? I said, well, I can afford it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need your Watch permission. <laughs> I said, I don't need your permission and all your money. So I, I remember I uh, bought my first car. She said, why are you buying such an expensive car? I said, mum, I can afford it. It's yeah. all right. Yeah. Um, she must be so proud. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure she is. But yeah, the, I didn't have that, as I said, comfortability of mm. coasting through my career. Even when I went to Wimbledon, I signed a contract basically every season because the carrot was always dangled and I had to prove myself. Yeah. I weren't like today where you can see a lot of players get paid extremely well based on potential mm. and half the time they don't materialise that. True, very, very And true. they're very comfortable by the time they're 22, 24, their career's more or less over. Yeah. Whereas mine was always on the edge. Can I get to the next level? Can I earn that contract? Can I get to... I was always performing to get the next level. Um... And I eventually got there with Wimbledon. Yeah. And then had four four good you know, paying years um, from Wimbledon through to Rangers. And then at Watford, there was like a four-year period over those three clubs where I, paid, I got paid well. Yeah. And with going back to the international playing for Jamaica, mm -hmm. what, what was that moment like? And was your... You know, did you then did you go to your dad first and say, Do you know what, I want to play for Jamaica? Was it something that you spoke about with him when you were younger? Like what was that moment like? No, there weren't a conversation like that. It was it just purely football. Yeah. I knew the Federation was watching Wimbledon games, they was watching myself, obviously Robbie Earl at the time. Um but also Glenn Hoddle was watching mm. England. Oh not England, but he's watching Wimbledon. His, his coach was always there. A guy called Ted Buxton. So there was there was a few whispers. Yeah. Myself, Robbie, could be included into a squad. And I thought that's a nice thing. Mm, definitely. But I just thought there's a lot of competition that they can pick before me. So it wasn't like I doubted myself, but I was realistic to think you got Andy Cole, you got Alan Shearer, you got Les Ferdinand, you got Robbie Fowler, you got my club in, up and coming. Yeah. So there's a a long line of players that will definitely play or be ahead of me, which was totally fine. And then um. The offer came about contemplating playing for Jamaica. I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I will. So that started in 97. But um, the contract I, signed, I just signed with Wimbledon stated that I could only play for, for uh, England. So they saw the potential of me playing for England. And so I looked at it and I thought, look, I'm not in a position not to sign this. Yeah, I need to sign my contract. Yeah. I, need to, I, need a, I need to live. I need to pay for my house. I need to look after my family and all this stuff. So I wasn't in a position to say, well, I'm not signing that. Maybe I should have. Mm. But um, in the end, I took the case to FIFA and they voted in my favour that, well, he's eligible. So what I'd done, I'd, I went to the High Commission office, got a passport. <laughs> I told the club <laughs> and they were pissed. <laughs> but as I said to him, I said, what you're trying to say is that my dad is non-existent mm -hmm. or my mother is non-existent. Yeah. Like they don't come from anywhere. And I said, that's out of order. Be beautifully said. So, yeah. I eventually got the clearance in January of 1998. Wow. And then I made my debut against Brazil in February. Wow. So it was myself and Frank Sinclair. Oh. That was our debut games. He started, I prayed for him because he was up against <laughs> Den Nielsen. I mean, come on. Your so, first game like yeah, that is madness. It, the, I prayed for him. Once I heard the national anthem, everything changed. Mm. I was like, wow, I've never heard a national anthem and I connected to it. Yeah. So the crowd was singing it as well. So it was like, it was, the crowd and the squad were like one system. 
And I felt sorry for Brazil that night. I don't know why, but <laughs> I just felt there was something special when yeah. I first heard it in that match. We ended up drawing the game nil-nil, which was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was I was with Jamaica for two years. Mm-hmm. I think I was the first English-born to captain the side as well That's in '99. So I'd done that for about a season, and then the, the coach changed. Um, the mentality sort of changed for me as well. Mm. Uh, Wimbledon got relegated, so I felt bad about. I felt responsible, part responsible, mm. that the club had gone down. I wanted to help them come back up. Uh, the new national coach was not that great with me in terms of I think I was going away somewhere and I wanted he wanted me in the squad to go to I think it was Morocco or something to play a game or two and I said look I'm coming back on this particular day I'm happy to come out but Mm. give me a day to sort myself out and come but he wanted me to land and fly straight away and I was like well save my flights delayed yeah I can't make the first one Demanded, and you're yeah. already putting me under pressure. If you don't make this squad, I'm going to forget about you. So I said, you know what? If you can't be reasonable, yeah, let's just call it a day. And that's what we did. Oh, wow. Called it a day in 2000. And looking back at the games, all, all the many, many games, is there one match that particularly stands out to you? I mean, just describing that international sounds mm. incredible. But is there one that really stands out to you? Um, I would say... We played Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, 96. So these are back in the days where the opposition, for us, we could drive to the stadium. You wouldn't do that now. No, no. So I actually drove, because I, obviously I, I live locally as well, so I knew the roads. Um, so I parked up, you walk in, teams are already picked, we know it. We go out there and we go and annihilate Chelsea, 4-2. That's incredible. Um, I scored a, a modest goal of the weekend in Europe. <laughs> Um, very it, subtle it, way it, it, I play it, was, it down it was a cheeky little nutmeg Troy, Troy likes to watch this goal as well so when we was on our uh, Equality Inspires workshops yeah. he, he would use that as one of my intros really to show the boys and they're like oh so you've got a bit have you yeah so it was a chest control faced Steve Clark the defender who was trying to come in and break me with like a scissors tackle so I, I nutmeg him on the edge of the box and I could see two two other defenders coming in, so I didn't have time to wind my leg up. Yeah. So all I could do, the ball was just in front of my left toe, so I just stabbed at it. So the toe poke goes top corner. Wow, that's a so, mic drop moment. Wow. So that's what happened. People think it was outside of the foot, but it was actually a toe poke that went the wrong way, but it ended up top corner, so I'm still claiming it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, um, yeah. <laughs> but it was after now where everyone's jubilant, mm. and I'm like, oh, shit. I need to walk back to my car. The locals ain't going to be happy. Oh, yeah, of course. So I thought I better just put my bag on my back, head down, do not make no eye contact and just get to your car swift. That seems so old-fashioned. So I just lift the eyebrows up and I thought, oh. there's a mob of 20 coming towards me. <laughs> so I'm like, uh-oh, this is it, Gailey. You're going to get an absolute roast in here. <gasps> then I heard, oi, Gail. I went, yeah. He went, big black guy as well. He went, nice goal today, son. I went, oh, okay, thanks. Cheers, mate. And walked on. Oh, um, wow. Now I'm feeling like 10 feet tall. I'm thinking, <laughs> cap off I'm like, you know, off. I got to my car. I wound down the window. I started playing some tunes. I thought I was the man driving <laughs> yes. back home, which I felt at the time. Yeah, king of but, the castle. Um, yeah, that game stood out. Like, they had players like Rude Hollett. They had wow. Mark Hughes. Um, 
Gianluca Vialli, who we sadly lost at the start of this year. Yeah. They had some top players in there. But one thing we done that season was scare everybody with good football. Yeah. I think we caught people by surprise how good we was. And we went on a, I think it was an eight-game unbeaten run. We won seven. Seven straight wins, which is never, ever spoken about in Premier League history. Yeah. The only time you hear about Wimbledon is the goals that we've conceded. So you probably see... That's so true. Yeah, yeah. You see Matthew Letizia's best ever goals. You probably see five of them were against Wimbledon. That's the only time you really see us. But they'll never talk about this small club won seven Premier League games on the bounce. And then we drew the eighth game to... I think it was away to Middlesbrough, which was a a funny game. But... um, I love how you remember it all. When you look back, you remember the dates, you remember the teams. Mm, sometimes, sometimes. I would still like to go back and have a look at those sort of moments, the goals that I scored. I'm still trying to collect all of those as well because when I look back now, a lot of my family didn't see the goals. So yeah. my kids are now big. They're not kids, they're adults. They're 22 and 25 this year. Um, but now they're adults, they start hearing about who their dad was. Yeah. But when there was a kid walking down the street with me, and they'll see someone walking up and say, oh, Marcus, I'm like, yeah, hi. They're like, Dad, who's that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like that. And they couldn't work it out. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to explain to them, like, they probably just know me from football. That's all. Like, mm. But to them, I'm just their dad. Yeah. But yeah. now, as adults, they get to hear more about the professional side of dad. Mm. And they're like, oh, okay. That's I'd... pretty cool. Yeah. It's cool for them. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Well, from playing professional football, you obviously went to coaching mm-hmm. um, and then work with Kick It Out. Yeah. So let's talk about Kick It Out because I know that's, you know, you and Troy have, have worked together. What was the work you were doing at Kick It Out? Was it for five years? Is that? Yeah, I had five years with Troy. He sort of headhunted me yeah. back in 2016, I think it was, yeah. First session was Charlton Away. And in the corner was sitting there was Ademola Lookman. Oh, wow. Who was as shy as anything. So Troy was after me for a little while. So the previous year, I probably went through some stuff that I didn't expect to go through. So I got sacked end of 2014 at Stainstown. I promised a kid I'll make a couple phone calls for him because mm. I believe he could be a pro. Yeah. Um, that kid is Joe Reba at Southampton. So I made the call to Charlton to get him in there. Um, but the 2015, when I made that call, I was going through probably mild depression myself and I didn't even realise it. Yeah. Because the game, I felt, spat me out. So 2015, I was, like, trying to discover who I really am. So I didn't even want to go football. I was, like, dead against even going to games. Really? But um, I got a call from Brentford to come to Brentford-Watford game. And then that was, like, the, the turning point. Yeah. Felt the football love. The Brentford fans sort of saved me. It was, like, a lot of love. Like, good to see you need to be back here again next week mm. so I started doing that bought a season ticket but I was going through a lot of changes myself like who am I at that age yeah I suppose um, if football was your life your identity is football when yeah, that stopped that's it's all like, I know what's my identity yeah I, I, I was probably lost for about nine months of that year so I'd done a bit of coaching with a mate of mine and then um, Troy came along in 2016 mm. um, and said why don't you come and have a look so I had a look I said it was Charlton yeah. And I was there for five years with him. <laughs> and love <laughs> Troy to bits. He, he's top guy. Yeah. yeah I learned so much from him. Still do as well. We can always have a laugh. Yeah. So the sessions we used to do was um, equality inspires. Mm. So you talk, you, you, you're dealing with topics that surround the modern day player. 
So we'd have topics of social media, which is important yeah. to, to sort of educate players on the safeguarding of that. Uh, music was a huge topic as well. Music. Because music has it and it still contains homophobic language, racist okay. language, sexist yeah. language, the whole culture around it, the impact it has on players if they use those words mm. or if fans use those words. Mm. So it's all geared around what surrounds the player. Mm. Um, some of it was with the coaches as well, the parents and guardians. Um, so it's all looking at every segment that surrounds that one player yeah. in, in this industry, which yeah. is really good. So I think I've done about just over 300 sessions with him. And it's all incredible, you know, seeing some of the players from when they was 15, 16, and they're in first teams now. Um, it makes you feel that you play a tiny part. Mm, definitely. You play a tiny part. And to be fair, I saw Troy at the um, London Football Awards, mm. and we noticed this sharply dressed young man, and he came up to us, he came, well, he came up to Troy first, and he said, yeah, I remember you from Bournemouth. And he's like, oh, yeah. He goes, yeah, it was quite some time ago. And Troy went, yeah, I was probably with him. And he goes, as it goes, yeah, you, you was with him as well. And he mentioned about our session. He mentioned about what he took away from the session. I think it was a music topic yeah. on social media. And he said, yeah, he always kept that, that on board in his future journey. He didn't make it as, as a footballer. I think he's a model now. Yeah. But um, And Troy goes like, just when you think, what's the point of carrying on? Mm. You get moments like this. That's the thing, isn't it? Where it's the good work you do, it might not be seen as something great by the masses, but when you have a moment where a young kid that doesn't play football anymore remembers a 90-minute session that you put on, yeah. it's incredible. It yeah. shows you that there is a value to what, you're doing. what yeah. we do and what Troy leads beautifully well. Mm. Um, and and he, should be, he should be running the country with this sort of stuff and he, he does in his own way yeah, yeah but I think he should be like the go-to person on this sort of topic around players yeah I suppose when you look back when you were a younger player something like this I mean I know times have changed in regards to social media but something like this was could have been invaluable yeah there was, there was nothing in my time no as soon as you're 16 you're flung into a change room full of men yeah you got to train with them you got to play against them um you're still no, growing up at 16 as still, well. You're still finding out who you are. Yeah. But you, you, you get engrossed with this adult culture mm. um, and you had to survive if you could. Luckily for me, I tell people that it's like I put on like an invisible space helmet at that age because yeah. I knew certain things, what I heard or saw. I was like, mm, I need to protect myself. I don't know what for, but I just felt my spirit needed to protect itself. So I put on this helmet and every now and again I will just... Lift up that visor. Yeah, I'm in the right direction. Close it, head down, train, play games hard. And that's how it was because there was no safety for players. There was no um, EDI mm. people in, in, in the grounds or stadiums. There was no sort of counsellors or anything. So if you had a problem, you had nowhere to go. You had to just keep it to yourself. And especially being black as well. Yeah. Because I've heard it said like, no, oh, you've got a chip on your shoulder. So it's like, what's the point of talking? Why am I talking to you? Because you don't want to hear what I want to no, say. You're no. not interested. Today's a totally different ball game. Mm. The players have that support now. Mm. Um, the problems are still the same, yep. unfortunately. Yeah. But it's a better place because they have people like Troy. Mm. Um, they have me at the club as well, Brentford, yeah. that has that experience. 
players can go to you. Yeah. Can, I suppose back in the day, they couldn't say, do you know what? Someone said this in the, the there was no a one. fan said this and abused me on the pitch. What you, can you, I do? You had to take it on the chin. You had your teammates that would be there for you. Mm. Um, luckily, I had, I had some good pros, Richard Cadet, um, Keith Jones in particular. Mm. They were they were big characters. Smaller guys compared to me, but big characters. <laughs> <laughs> but I looked up to them in in that way, spiritual yeah. way. Yeah. But, but in reality, I was looking down at them because I was much taller than them. <laughs> but those guys, they they shaped me. They defended me. They encouraged me mm. to like break out of my little shell and become who I needed to be. Yeah. So I'm always indebted to those guys that were there in those early years. Because if I didn't have them, I don't know if I would have played really. Really. Because they were they were very strong characters. They would challenge the authority. And as a young kid, it's like. Can I? Oh, well, Keithy Jones has done that. Richie Cadet's done that. I'm like, should I? But I was never one of those. Mm. I was like, you're going to have to play me because I'm the best one for that position. Right. So you can't ignore me. Yeah. So my talking was done through actual playing. Your skill. Yeah. yeah. Your I, was a, I was a very quiet youngster back then. But yeah. I can talk now. Yeah, no, you can make <laughs> up a lot of time. It's completely yeah. fine. And, and being a club ambassador for Brentford... Mm-hmm. For you, sounds it, it sounds beautiful considering they were the club that brought you back to yourself. Yeah, I had two playing spells. Now the third spell is um, the first ever club ambassador, as it goes. Oh wow! So I, I take that with high high distinction. Yeah, I a lot would. of pride. Yeah, um, I keep myself on a tight tight rope as well, so I know my standards has to be very high. Yeah, because the club's never had anybody in that position, so. Amazing. If there's more to come after me, great. At least I've got something to measure it on and say, yeah. this is what Marcus done. This is what he was doing for us. Blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, it's a good role. Mm. Um, it helps me to become more of myself. Mm. Um, and the fact that the club's got into the Premier League, it escalates that as well. Yeah. So it's now, you know, Brentford, we've had many players over the years. Um, and I think why I work well with Brentford is that I was probably their first one that started off at the club and to be sold into the Premier League. And then that journey begun like that. So the Premier League would know myself. The broadcasters would know myself based on the years I had at that level. So it does help the club in in certain aspects now where they want to talk to someone at the club. So I'm that person that the outside broadcasters Mm. will come and talk to. So, yeah, I, I love the role. Um, there's more room for me to develop in that as well. Because mm. at the time, the club probably didn't know what to do with an ambassador. Even yeah. sometimes I don't know what I do. <laughs> but I just know I'm there and yeah. I'm doing lots of little things. So yeah. it's, it's, it's got room to develop. Um, and I've got that sort of free reign to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm occupying my time wisely um, and promoting the club as much as I can. Would you say you've fallen back in love with football again? Yeah, I, I don't think... I don't think falling can, out of love, yeah. It's feeling it as well. And I think in this industry, the game can forget players very quick. As I said, I could play in that game for 18 years. But within a year, if you're not doing anything, you're forgotten. Mm. It doesn't take that much to forget a player. And, I, and that's what I've been saying for the last three months about football still needs to welcome and value the ex-players. Because... They're, they're the gems of whatever club. Mm. They've got the inside knowledge, yeah. the culture. They understand the fans. They understand the game. It's priceless, isn't it? It yeah. is priceless. So I would 
make sure fat, you know, especially our players that come back, I want them to feel more welcome than valued mm. because they have a part to play in the history of any club. Um, but I said, the game is now, a, it's more like a business more than anything. And you're getting a lot of these types of characters coming in. They're not all for the good of the game. Mm. And sometimes I think when you look at other sports, you look at rugby, you look at um, basketball, American football, these, there's a lot of ex-players involved with their, their sport still. Mm. I think football is still a bit short in that, is that it goes for the, the guys with the degrees, the women with the degrees. I'm like, okay, you ain't got a degree in playing football. Yeah, How do you so know true. what it's like Can't to tie your boots up and walk across that line and play in front of thousands? Mm. You've never experienced that. That takes some serious bollocks to do that. Mm. Yeah. It takes a different type of strength. And especially today, players are getting abused. That's yeah. another level of mm. tolerance you need to, to be out there. And I just feel that clubs could and should tap into their ex-players a lot more because mm. they contain the vital ingredients that what makes a player, what creates the atmosphere, what creates that nostalgia with the fans. You see fans that come back, or players that come back down to Brentford, the impact they have, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. There's a lot of, it's, it's crazy at times and I know I'm getting old, which is mad to think <laughs> where, Don't start looking this, aging happens, <laughs> this happens every match at Brentford where a dad will say to his little 10 year old, get a picture of him get a picture of him and the kid's like I don't know who this guy is I'm like kid come here yeah you Look, will it's not for you it's for him because when he was your age I was in the team Aww. that he loved so take the picture for him alright so the kid takes the picture we smile takes the picture walks off so yeah that, that happens all the that. time yeah good but it's like having an impact with people that's what I like having just mm. an impact with people, a positive impact yeah they can always remember me by something whatever interaction it is that's beautifully said well look Marcus we've run out of time but <gasps> thank you I actually could chat to you all day long it's been good, really good. Like um, but yeah thank you for joining no, thank you um, for having me on yeah. pleasure to meet you as well thank you so much for listening don't forget to follow and subscribe to Behind the Dugout Podcast and find us on Instagram at Behind the Dugout Podcast for announcements and exclusive video clips from here in the studio we'll see you next time Behind the Dugout Podcast powered by Paramex Digital.